Our text this evening will be from Genesis chapter 4. We will now make our way through verses 1 through 7. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the goal of the Christian life can be summed up in a word, namely maturity. That is, we are to grow up as the body of Christ more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the covenant head of a new humanity. We are indeed the body of Christ, that we might look like Christ and act more like Christ and think like Christ and talk like Christ and love like Christ and trust the Father like Jesus Christ and through our witness to call more and more into the body of Christ. That's the goal. Colossians 1.28 Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And a clear fruit of growth in Christian maturity, though there are, there are others, but this is one of the fruits, is when you start thinking about the decisions you make now, not just in light of what they will do for you, but how they will impact those who come after you. As we mature, we're working and building, not just so that we have something now to enjoy, but so that those who will come through us will receive an inheritance, both spiritually and physically. At Pilgrim Hill, we want to do what we do today, not just for the good of us now or just for the good of our city now, but for the salvation of our grandchildren and for the reformation of Goodlettsville. We want them to be born into a Christ-saturated, joyful, mature, and maturing Christian culture all the way down. And though salvation is always and only the gracious work of God Almighty, where he applies the work of Christ by grace, through faith, and through faith alone, Scripture also clearly teaches that ordinarily and inevitably, the way of life in one generation, in the providence of God, will have a massive impact on the next generation. We will leave a legacy. God will use us to be a launch pad for those who come after us when that's whether for good or for ill. For good, we see in 2 Timothy 1.5 where it says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, 
a faith that dwell first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you also. And we see for ill as well, for instance, 2 Kings 21, 19 through 20. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. What we do today really will impact the coming generation. And as we transition from the creation accounts and from the entrance of sin into God's good creation, as we begin life outside of the garden and now we are east of Eden, over the next section of Genesis, so Genesis 4 to 6, we're going to see the sin of Adam being passed along growing more and more vicious and more and more wicked on the earth until we'll finally come to Genesis 6-5 where the text says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth in that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Which then, of course, leads to the judgment of the great flood. Our decisions have consequences downstream. Now it takes over a thousand years to get from Adam to the flood. But as we see in our text today, and as we'll see even more clearly in the text next week, the sin of the father was transferred to the son, which increasingly had devastating and deadly results. And and this example will serve us as a great warning for us about the dangers of becoming hardened in our sin rather than being humbled and restored and repentant when inevitably we do sin. And with that, let's turn again to our text. Back to verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew his wife, and, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And, and so here we see Cain. He is the first human offspring ever in the world. And of course, all throughout Scripture, names have great significance. And so we do well to to look up the etymology of, of names and the meaning of names. And, and the name for Cain sounds like the word to acquire. So, so Eve says, I have gotten, I've acquired a man with the help of the Lord. And Cain's name sounds like that word to say to acquire. And likely because of the promise that God had given Eve, remember? That it would be her seed who would come and crush the serpent. And so Cain comes. And she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have a seed. And so his name means I've acquired this promise, perhaps. Verse two. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And so Cain, being the firstborn, was mentored into his father's vocation, a keeper of the ground. and, And Abel was now a keeper of the sheep. And so if Cain means to acquire, what about Abel? Well, Abel means a vapor or a breath, which is perhaps not not as hopeful as Cain. And as we shall see next week, Abel's name is going to prove much more fitting than Cain's name. And the story continues. Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of of the ground. So in when I read it initially I said first I misspoke and that's very important. 
It was not first. It was fruit of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. In verse 4, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And these verses obviously are incredibly significant in several ways. First, we learn that even though Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden and driven out of the immediate presence and fellowship of the Lord, we see here that they and their children were still in a a covenantal relationship with God. And we learn that Adam and Eve had clearly been teaching their sons the ways of the Lord. Well, how do we know this? Well, for one, their son knew that they were to present themselves to the Lord at a certain time, and, and not just to present themselves, but to bring an offering with them. That phrase, in the course of time, literally means at the end of days. And so this could perhaps, this is speculation, but perhaps it's referring to the end of the harvest season, or perhaps it is a liturgical rhythm that they had. At the end of days, they would come and, and present themselves to the Lord. And, and Adam certainly must have passed this along to them. Regardless, the sons had a liturgy of bringing offerings and sacrifices to the Lord which is a sign of covenantal relationship. And so this is a very encouraging start, given that we last left Adam and Eve with their backs to Eden, being driven out from the garden. So that's, that's encouraging. The Lord had continued to be their God. And we also see that there were certain expectations about the offerings, again, which is another confirmation of, of covenant relationship. We see that, obviously, because the Lord had regard for Abel, but he had no regard for Cain. One was a a pleasing and a fitting and an obedient offering, and one wasn't. And it is this point of conflict that sparks all the drama in chapter 4 and then ricochets down through the subsequent chapters. And the most obvious question, as we consider this this crucial point, Abel, regard for, embraced, accepted, Cain, rejected, the question is, why? Right? Why? We don't have a ton of information here. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's not? Now, if we had this situation after the book of Leviticus, it'd be easy to resolve. We'd just pull up the ceremonial laws Do a quick search and see where did Cain miss it here? But that's a long ways in coming. This is hundreds of years before Leviticus and the law surrounding offerings. So it's not that simple. However, there are at least two clues in the text itself that tip us off if we would look closely. The first one is the word first. In verse 4, we're told that Abel brought his firstborn of the flock. And not only that, but it also says that he brought of their fat portions of the firstborn. And that word can also be translated best or or the choice portion. 
So Abel literally brought the first and the best of what he had to offer to the Lord. He, he didn't wait until the whole flock had given birth and then grab one of the, the, the scrawny, gimpy ones and say, that, that'll do, it's just going to the Lord anyways and I'm going to lose it and, and take all the fat ones and put them in a private reserve for Abel. He didn't do that. He brought the best part of the first one. But Cain, it simply says that he brought an offer of the fruits of the ground. And this contrast, to be sure, is meant to get our attention. This is intentional. It tells us everything that we need to know about the difference of the heart posture in the men bringing the offerings. And you may say, well, that's reading a lot into it. But I actually have a Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on this scene. We do in Hebrews 11.4, which actually fills in what's happening here, which is amazing. So Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith. Though he died, he still speaks. And this inspired insight is really interesting because in Genesis 4, we never hear Abel speak. We never hear Abel speak in the whole Bible. Spoiler alert, he's going to die next week. In fact, according to the Hebrew text, we can say if Genesis 3.15 is, is the proto-evangelium, the, the first declaration of the gospel, that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent, perhaps we can say that Abel preaches the second evangelium in Scripture. Abel was the first Protestant, showing that we are saved by faith in God and not merely through empty religious ceremony. There's nothing new under the sun. This has always been the temptation. This shows that salvation in Scripture, from first to last, from Old Testament to New Testament, is always and only by faith and by faith alone. By faith man was saved, and by faith man is saved. Abel was not declared righteous based on his offering itself. It's, it's not that the Lord like really preferred ribeye over to okra, which I'm sure he does. <laughs> but that's not what it was about. That's not why he was declared righteous. Rather, it was because what he brought in his hands revealed the faith that was in his heart. You see what's happening there. So Hebrews really helps us here. He, Abel had faith, a living faith in a living God. And as James says, faith without works is dead. So he wasn't saved by the offering, but his faith was being worked out in his works. Okay. Now it's worth asking, how did his offering reveal his faith? So Hebrews helps us by giving us an inspired commentary, but it still makes us ask, how was his faith revealed? Well, this, I believe, is a way that we can see it here. Perhaps not the only way, but it's, it's one that I, I would argue definitely is there. By bringing the first and the best to the Lord, 
Abel was showing that he wasn't waiting to see how things played out with his flock to decide what he could spare. He wasn't bringing the scraps or the obvious surplus. Let me say that again. He wasn't bringing the scraps or the obvious surplus. Right? It's easy to bring up a whole horde of heifers when you know you've had 10,000, right? I might say, look at the man's faith. Well, actually, I know what I already have. Abel wasn't doing that. Rather, he brought the first and the best. He would not have that for himself anymore. He was giving it to the Lord, which means he was trusting wholly that the Lord would provide for everything that he and his people needed. By bringing his first, he was declaring his faith in the Lord. And this was pleasing to the Lord. So just two verses later, after that able bit in Hebrews, the Lord teaches us practically how this works. So that was Hebrews 11.4. This is Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, so this is still in the context of Abel, he's drawing near to God, what must he do? First, he must believe that he exists. And second, that he rewards those who seek him. Which means the Lord wants us to look to him for rewards. The Lord wants us to be in a position of having to rely on him so he can prove that he's faithful. In fact, the text says that is a prerequisite for pleasing him. To believe that he will reward those who seek him. Now, does that make you a little uncomfortable? Like, is the writer of Hebrews a little too prosperity gospel-ish, perhaps? Of course not. Wouldn't that be weird if I said, yeah, he was? No, he wasn't. This is what's happening. He's not saying that we come to the Lord like a vending machine. So if I put in these coins, I get to decide exactly what comes out. And that's important. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, come to him as a generous father who knows what we need better than we know ourselves and will provide that thing for us. He will always provide the most needful thing for our current situation as we look to him in faith, even if that means a seasoning, a season of belt tightening. That is not with him withholding a good thing. That is him giving a very needful thing. I remember when my pastor, when I was a little kid, saying in the context of tithing, you need to give the money more than we need to get the money. And that's actually really stuck with me. That has echoed all throughout the decades when I'm tempted towards tight-fistedness. I actually need to give it more than that person needs to receive it. Now, of course, of course, statements like that can be and have been abused, of course. But the sentiment is sound. It is a true statement. And it's at the heart of our text today. Abel brought the offering he did because he had faith in the provision of the Lord who could do far more exceedingly than even his best offering. And Cain brought the offering he did because he didn't have faith. Yes, Cain believed God existed. So check one of the Hebrews eleven six, But not that he was a generous rewarder. Cain believed that if he offered to the Lord his first and his best, it would actually be a poor investment. It would be 
wasted. It would be a net loss for him. And so we would do well to let this examine our heart behind the offerings that we bring to the Lord. Now, naturally, our mind immediately goes to money. And obviously, that's implicit in the text. And it does include that. As Christians, we are called to contribute with a cheerful, trusting heart to the work of the church, to other worthy ministries, to those around us that have needs. And Pilgrim Hill is an incredibly generous church, which I thank God for. I don't believe in these two years I've ever once taught on giving. And the Lord has always provided for what we needed. And so I'm thankful for that. And so my encouragement to you is along the lines of Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians when he says, your love is well known, so just keep doing that. Just, just, just keep growing up into that. Let's all keep being generous together on purpose, expecting the Lord to bless every cent that we collectively put in together. But we bring other offerings to the Lord as well. And another offering that we bring, which is baked actually into this text today as well, is the offering of our worship on the Lord's Day. This is an offering that we bring. That's why the scriptures say to bring a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. And as we've said many times on Sunday, we're not simply going to church. So we have to to rewire the way we think about some of these things. We are coming, called by God, to be renewed in covenant with God as the people of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. We come and we present ourselves. And as modern American Christians, we're tempted to bring our consumer mindset into church, ready to to rate a commodity that we've consumed which puts us and our preferences at the center, rather than entering the throne room of the Lord with him at the center, ready to not judge the performance of the religious professionals, but ready to together offer ourselves up and our worship to the living God who is totally worthy of our praise. And this is the end of Hebrews 12. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the word picture that comes, or the picture that comes into your mind when you hear the end of that, it's, it's meant to get our attention, but it's not talking about raining down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, about consuming fire. This is thoroughly sacrificial language. This is the fire of God coming down on the altar. This picture is of Christian worship, uh, worship where we come and, and, and we lay ourselves together on the altar and our offering. And if it is acceptable, which of course means if it's done in faith and with reverence and awe, as the text says, God consumes it. And the fire of his Holy Spirit comes down on us with power and with great encouragement. See, Hebrews teaches us that that we don't come to church to consume primarily. Rather, we come to bring our offering for God to consume on the altar. And then, of course, he offers himself back to us in his word and in his spirit and through communion. There is a reciprocation happening here. And this is a big deal. This is why we want to always be thoughtful and reverent and joyful in our worship, not to impress others but to offer to God the most acceptable offering that we can bring through Jesus Christ. 
We don't want to come before the Lord like Cain, sluggish and obligatory to check a spiritual box. Rather, let us come as an army of Abel's by faith and eager to give our best offering to the Lord. This is why we respond in the readings with conviction and with gusto, because we're addressing our king in that moment. And this is why we sing out, to borrow John Wesley's line, lustily and with good courage. So he published a hymnal and he had rules about singing in it. And that was one of them. Sing lustily and with good courage. It's awesome. I'll send a link that Ms. Cunningham shared with me about that in the email this week. And we do so even if we don't prefer a certain song. Because we don't let our preferences decide the quality of our offering. It's not about us. It's for the Lord. And it's for the edification of the body. And when the song's done, we shout a corporate amen together. And that helps us to break out of our drift towards individualism in worship. And it reminds us that we are worshiping together as the body of Christ. So those are two examples of Christian offerings that we see in the text. Financial offerings and, and worship on the Lord's Day. And of course, there are, are more that we could apply the principle to, but that we'll have to do for now. And the overarching lesson from Cain and Abel here is this. Whatever we bring unto the Lord, let us desire to, by faith, bring our best for Jesus' sake, knowing he rewards those who seek him and trust him. Okay, so back to the Genesis text. And, and now we transition to Cain's response to the Lord's rejecting of his offering. Verses I believe it's 5b through 7. So halfway down 5 through 7. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So the same exact language that we get in the judgments on the woman in Genesis 3. And we see here that Cain is at a crucial point. Because Cain wasn't just angry, it says he was very angry. Cain was, was seething and he was ashamed and his countenance fell. He, he wouldn't even look the Lord in his eyes as it were. And one of the reasons he was so angry, to be sure, was because he was the firstborn and his little brother was just praised while he was just rejected. And he hated that. Made him very angry. And this is a critical point. Because as James 1.20 says, the anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Now, of course, there's such a thing as righteous anger to be sure, but even that needs to be very carefully funneled so that it does good and not destruction. But Cain's anger is not righteous anger. Cain deserved the rebuke that he got. His offering in his hands revealed the sin in his heart. And so it was not acceptable. And, and whenever that happens, whenever our sin is brought into the light, so, so you hear a scripture, a sermon, a word from a friend, and your sin is brought on display and there's no hiding it. We're at a crossroads. And here are the two options. We can either humble our hearts in repentance 
Or we can harden our hearts in resistance. There is no neutral ground there when conviction comes. You can either humble your heart in repentance or harden your heart in resistance to the Lord. And this is what the Lord so patiently and graciously brings to Cain's attention, just like he did his father's. He didn't merely judge Cain. He didn't inflame his anger. Rather, he engages him with a question. Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? So he's calling for introspection, self-awareness. Consider what's happening right now, Cain. And Cain's at a crossroads, and, and he's teetering. The Lord's looking to talk him off the ledge for Cain's own good. And then the Lord appeals to him. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And the word for accepted here literally means exalted. If you do well, will I not lift you up again? Will I not lift your face, Cain? If you do well, what does that mean? That's important, right? What does it mean to do well here in context? I think given everything we know, the answer obviously is to humble himself and to acknowledge his pride and his ingratitude and his lame offering and to repent and then by faith to bring an acceptable offering. I think that's what doing well here is. The Lord is saying essentially, this doesn't have to end like this, Cain. I want to restore your dignity. I'm not out to get you. I want to lift you up. The Lord's saying to Cain essentially what he said through James thousands of years later, humble yourself before the Lord and I will exalt you. So that's one option before Cain, restoration and exaltation through repentance. However, the Lord continues, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is contrary to you. Literally, its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. So this is the other option to give in to his sin. And here we have sin personified. His sin is at the door, ready to attack him. But the translation here of crouching really isn't entirely accurate. And I really think it doesn't paint the right picture because the word literally is lying. Cain, sin is lying at your door. Why is that important? What was just cursed? To lie? On the ground? This is a picture of the serpent, I believe. Lying in wait for the seed of the woman. Lying at the doorstep, waiting to strike him. Waiting to fill him with the poison of bitterness. Waiting to harden him so that he might destroy him. Whereas the Lord wants to humble him and then restore him. There is no neutral ground here. Someone will be mastered. Either Cain will master the serpent or the serpent will master Cain. And the Lord is warning him and us that this is not a foe to be taken lightly. Sin must be mastered. Sin must be killed. Sin must be struck down or it will gain mastery over us. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is the drama before us. 
And next week we'll see that Cain does not master his sin. He does not heed the Lord's gentle rebuke. He does not put the heel to the head of the serpent. But he'll chose to harden his heart rather than to humble his heart. And we will see the deadly consequences of that. So in conclusion today, here's my closing exhortation for us, Pilgrim Hill. Let us not be too proud to receive the gentle rebukes or instruction or admonishment from the word of God when it highlights our specific sins. Anytime we hear a verse and we know the translate or the exegesis is right and we don't like it, that's a moment. That's the word of the Lord that you are not comfortable with. This was Cain's demise. It's not that he didn't know the truth, it's that he was too proud to receive the truth. And at the beginning, we saw that we will leave a legacy for those who come after us. And, spoiler alert, our legacy will not be, so here's the path of perfection. Not one of us is perfect, not one of us will be perfect. And so we see our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Then we will be like him, but not until then. Rather, as the people of God, as Christians, we want our legacy to be defined not by perfection, but by humble submission to the entire counsel of the word of God. And by the humble assumption that we have much need of instruction still. So whenever you hear a sermon or a teaching or read the Bible and your first thought often is, man, I really wish this person could hear that. Be careful there. We should always assume this is first for me. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent and wise. So saints of God, let us not, like Cain, despise the gentle rebukes from our father, which are his kindness and his love and his good discipline. We have much need of work still. Let us not despise it, but rather let us humbly receive it and then set our collective heel to the head of the serpent. And I'm going to leave you with the challenge, and this will take courage. And children and teenagers, this is for you as well. This is the challenge. Ask someone who knows you and that you trust and that is godly. Ask them this. What sin do you think most often lies at my door that I might not even be aware of? Ask maybe a spouse, maybe a godly friend, maybe a teacher. Let's, let's pour light together on the tactics of the ancient serpent. Let's send him slithering back to his hole together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord and our God. We thank you for your word. And Father, I would pray that you would continue to make us a people who love your word and who who do not ever stand in judgment over it, but humble ourselves, knowing that the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will endure forever. Make us a people that are conformed to your word, that love it, that love your gospel, For those who will look to you will be a radiant people. And we long to be a radiant people. That Jesus Christ may get much glory through our witness. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.